if leaders do not trust the value of other people's opinions, then you don't get off the starting blocks usually. So I often start, I mean, I literally start my work with leaders talking about the consequences of conversational habits and tying that into what they've got their eye on strategically and just really making it clear that, you know, pretty much everything that you've got on your eye on strategically depends on what people say and what which people get heard. And so to show that speaking up it is an act of loyalty, an act, uh, a really difficult act that's only done by people who care. Um, and I think once you start to see people like that, you get away from shooting the messenger. And also once you understand that you can own your mistakes, you don't have to cover up and divert attention and blame people. So, but those are so core in the culture, right? Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and develop organizations with a remarkably healthy culture that can positively impact all of its stakeholders. Every other Thursday, we drop hour-long conversations with world-leading researchers and experts on culture, ethics, change, and leadership. My name is Tobias Dursson, and I'm your host and the co-founder of Art Management. Just today, I've been in conversations with three organizations wrestling with silence, but in different ways, where critical concerns have not been raised or not listened to, essential feedback is not shared, and where vital ideas are missing. But how do you measure a lack of something? How do you deal with something that isn't really there? What strategies and habits need to be implemented or integrated to deal with silence? Three episodes ago, we had the fantastic Professor Megan Wrights on the podcast talking about a culture of listening. It was our most downloaded episode ever, and it was really clear that our message struck a chord with our audience. Since then, we've had the, the great pleasure of doing an online live Healthy Culture Initiative event with Megan and one of the world's leading whistleblowers, Mary Inman, who's also been on this podcast before about a year ago on episode 38. While we had other plans for this episode, which is the, the last episode of this season, my team and I all felt that instead we wanted to let you listen in on this really critical conversation with Megan and Mary as we explore how to deal with the culture of silence. So you're going to get this live recorded conversation and we really believe that it will speak into a lot of the issues and challenges that so many organizations face around silence. Megan Wrights is a researcher and professor in leadership and dialogue at Ashridge Executive Education, part of Holt International Business School. She's ranked as one of the top 50 management thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and on the 2021 HR Most Influential list. 
Mary Inman is a lawyer and a partner at Constantin Cannon with over 20 years of experience representing whistleblowers, including high-profile cases like the Theranos MedTech scandal that has really been made famous on shows on Netflix and other networks. Mary's work is featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, BBC, etc. But before we jump into this really, really fascinating and, and hopefully really helpful conversation, I wanted to take the time to thank you. Thank you for being a part of our community. Thank you for listening, for commenting and for sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Thank you for everything that you do to build more healthy cultures in the world. We have the pleasure and opportunity to speak to so many HR and ethics leaders and other leaders, and we know how much work and how passionately you work, and sometimes up against some really serious odds that you work in your organizations to really bring change. We're so grateful that you honor us with your time, and we're very excited to be back again in August after a well-needed break, and we're hoping that all of you will have some great summer holidays as well. And as we come back, we'll have some exciting changes and some fantastic conversations coming your way. But now, without further ado, for the last episode of the season, I want to welcome Megan Wrights and Mary Inman. Megan, it's so, so good to see you. Nice to see you again. And uh, I, I know you've had a big day today and, and uh, working on these topics, uh, which you do with so many different organizations, apart from, from being a researcher and author. So I'm, I'm so excited that we can dive into it together today. And we're going to try to get as, as practical as we can. We know that's something that our audience here really, our participants really appreciate. So but I wanted to, to start by just asking you uh, what, if you could just share one experience that highlights to you why it's essential to avoid a culture of silence and create a culture of listening. Mm. You can't ask somebody that's been researching for eight years to choose <laughs> one story. That's so unfair. Um, uh and I'm going to do the classic academic researcher and completely avoid the fact that you've only asked for one. And I might just say a little bit more around this if I if you'll indulge me. Um, so I've over the last eight years, I've heard stories in our research of when healthcare professionals have not felt able to speak up and it's cost lives. We've been, you know, in organizations where the financial transparency hasn't been uh, good enough where, you know, managers have demanded certain targets be met and the culture of silence that then is created has eventually pretty much brought the organisation down. We've got some pretty dramatic stories. Um, and in amongst all of that, I'm going to give you a much more mundane one. And the reason being is that when we talk about a culture of silence, I think many of the leaders and managers I work with tend to go to the kind of dramatic. Uh, and all of us 
and dare I say, especially managers and leaders are very good at then saying, listening to research and nodding their head with interest and going, yeah, luckily that doesn't happen around here. And they think that they're kind of different. So um, I'm also working, you know, I've been working with a, a executive team in the retail industry for a while. And on their executive team, they have certainly one member who is very, very uh, successful in terms of bringing in the commercials, bringing in profit. But the way in which he does that is pretty toxic for the rest of the organization. And this individual, and I kind of thinking that this might resonate with more of your listeners, because I bet most of your listeners are kind of going, yeah, yeah, we've got one of those. We've yeah. got one of those. So um, it's remarkable how long this person has been at this organization. And people do sort of talk about him, but not directly. And it's not the, the issue, the elephant in the room is not tackled. And every day, people on the executive team and beyond make these small little choices not to say anything. And this has been going on for years. And day to day, those small choices don't feel like they're that important, that, you know, doesn't matter if I don't speak up. But over the course of, say, two to three years, that organisation is now in a situation where there is a chasm that's gone straight down it because the people that report to this executive know that this executive doesn't collaborate and judges the rest of the organisation. And that is what that whole part of the organisation has just taken on in terms of behaviours. So my point with the story, and, and I'm not sure that the organisation is going to survive <laughs> after, you know, years and years of just quietly silencing and making small decisions not to say anything. So I just wanted to maybe offer a story that, that isn't so dramatic, but that shows that very small mundane things in terms of a culture of silence if you keep the same habits, I talk a lot about habits around what gets said and who gets heard. If those habits stay the same for the next year or the next uh, five years, very small, unimportant choices become actually pretty significant and, and big. So I thought I'd share that at the beginning. That's that's uh, so, so helpful, Megan. And I think for our participants, like you said, I think there's a lot of people nodding their heads and and we know those those people they might be in the executive team they might be the superstar salesperson there might be the superstar doctor or or professor uh, like whatever type of organizations we are so so mary i'm gonna ask you as well and and uh for kind of a just a short story of something that like it shows why you think it's so essential that we avoid a culture of silence for me to talk about a culture of silence, I have to take one step backwards. Um, and uh, since I'm a lawyer who specializes and have spent the past 25 years exclusively representing whistleblowers, I have seen patterns. Um, it's almost like there's a corporate playbook 
um, on how people respond, how companies and uh, organizations and people within or- those organizations respond when confronted with uh, inconvenient truths, as Al Gore would say. <laughs> um, and, and that is what to me creates the culture of silence is that my view is whistleblowers don't intend to be whistleblowers. Whistleblowers are made. Whistleblowers are created by the companies. Um, my clients are just people who tried, in effect, were actually just trying to do their job. If your job is head of internal audit and risk, um, you're going to often bring some unpopular views about um, some earnings reports that not, are not going to be as glowing as you want your stockholders and shareholders to think. So um, I believe that a culture of silence is created by um, the you have companies have very little room for error because how you treat a speak up will cert someone who speaks up will be spread and reverberate throughout the company. So if you um, take a retaliatory action um, against somebody for speaking out, they can be very subtle um, or they can be very obvious, you know, retaliation in, in the form of firing or more subtly and not inviting people to meetings, um, which sabotages their ability to do their job. My story about the culture of silence is the culture of silence is created as a message to other employees to stay in line. Keep in line, um, because this is what will happen to you if you speak out. Um, So um, I guess I would just caution companies to think really seriously about they how they handle someone who speaks up because all of the employees around them are watching um and if you handle that you, there's very little room for error if you handle if you fumble <laughs> that first one um you're not going to get any more reports um so uh, i think i would end my little anecdote um by what i think is a really chilling statistic uh, which is that, as you know, in the Amer- in the North America, we love to pay rewards to whistleblowers as a way to incentivize them for taking undertaking the risk of speaking up and um, the potential career um, negative career impacts that that can have. And um, we have one program in particular, our securities regulator called the SEC in the U.S. Um, puts out an annual report to Congress every year about the status of the Dodd-Frank whistleblower program. And the statistic I want to leave folks with is that year over year, um, the SEC reports that 80 in the, in the realm of usually 80 last year, it was 84% of the whistleblowers received rewards from the SEC reported internally first. So to me, that says that people aren't listening up. And I think there's a real myth that people believe because Americans pay uh, rewards that whistleblowers will just uh, bypass internal channels and go direct um, to, the, to, the, to the SEC, to the Americans. And, and that's just not true. It's not borne out by the data. It's not borne out by my experience. Um, and so again, I think it brings me back to that culture of silence, which is that people are trying to report um, and people uh, on the management and organization side don't want to hear bad news. That is so, so helpful. And, and, and I think that statistic, Marin, and I've had the opportunity to talk to uh, you uh, a couple of times. And I think that's, that's just such an incredible statistic that if we think that over 80% of the people 
who choose to then go to maybe a report externally that they have actually spoken up internally many times, oftentimes before they did. And, and I think connected to that, I think that shows why it's so incredibly important that we have, if we would say, a culture of listening where, where people don't have to to, to take those those kind of steps, I mean, both for their own sake and, of course, for the organization's sake and, and for the victim's sake in case there are victims involved. But if I, I wanted to, to ask you, when we think about a culture, and I, I know, for example, for, for one of our participants who's who's been like researching this within their organization, looking at, do we have a culture of silence here. And I wanted to ask both of you, what are what are some of the telltale signs? And, and I, I wanted to say that, that I think a lot of people here in this conversation and who will be listening to this afterwards, I think a majority of them, definitely there's private sector, also nonprofit sector, but the majority of them are from, from, from uh, governmental organizations. So, so that's like the public sector. So that's, that's really big here. So I think what are, what are some, if people here are looking into their organizations and thinking, do we have, or what are ways that we could show whether there is a culture of silence or not? Could you give some, some examples of, of kind of what are some telltale signs or great questions to ask? So again, just to to recap a bit of what we went over in the last um, podcast here to us, um, one of the biggest mistakes organisations make around speaking up and when they're running a speak up initiative and asking everybody to you know uh, speak up, one of the biggest mistakes is that we then try and point at the people that are being silent and then try and fix them you know, and, and tell them to be brave or, or give them a mandate, you know, or insist that they speak up. And as I spoke to you last time, I mentioned, well, actually, speaking up, of course, depends on the degree of listening up. Speaking up happens in relation to the invitation and uh, the ability for somebody to listen. And the reason why I just mentioned that again is that if we're trying to find the signs of silence, we can kind of go out there and try and look for the silent people and measure what people are saying, but we kind of don't know what we don't know. And one other thing that we can do is to look at the quality of, of line manager and management listening, look at the degree to which line managers seek opinions and invite and the way that they do that. Um, And if we are lacking in that, then you can, bet that there's probably a lot more silence than you even realize in the organization. And in my research, I I research it in a number of ways. Of course, you can run surveys. We've run a survey for about 13,000 employees now, which is a really interesting uh, picture of what the speak up or listen up culture is like but I'm a qualitative researcher at heart. And some of the questions I love to ask when I go into organizations is, you know, one of them is I sort of sidle up to people in the, in the hallway and I say, so what happens when you speak up round here? And then you get people's stories uh, and these stories reverberate in organizations and can last for years. Um, so finding out the answer 
to that research question, what happens when you speak up round here, can be really, really insightful. As can the question to managers and leaders, the other sort of research question I quite like is, when was the last time you were challenged? When was the last time somebody openly disagreed with your perspective? And if you are then met with a somewhat puzzled expression, uh, that's probably a red flag as well. <laughs> if, you, if you can't remember the last time somebody challenged you, bet you there's uh, some silence going on there inside the organisation. So, you know, you can find it out through various surveys, obviously, uh, and also you can find it out by finding out the stories that circulate inside uh, an organisation. So that's a, that's a sort of starter for 10. Um, that's 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 super super helpful megan so so and i I think love that to look at the 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 kind of quality of the listening that is going on and what does that actually look like and and to think about it as an as as an uh, like intentional act not like something that just happens and 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 mary i I wanted to ask you in in terms of and it was so funny because just as i was sitting and, and getting prepared for this conversation just half an hour ago, I get a, I get a, a message from my niece. And, and so she is, I think, 20 and, and she is now training to be an officer in the Swedish army. And she had just gotten back some feedback from an evaluation of recruits who she's been in leadership over for some time. And one of these recruits wrote like this, that, that, uh, uh, when I when I first met her, I thought she was incredibly scary. <laughs> but but after after getting to know her a bit, I'm just a little bit scared. <laughs> and then I and I wrote to her and I said that you've just gotten your first lesson in how much more intimidating we are than than what we might think as leaders. So and and I, I mean I don't find her as an intimidating person, but so 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 Mary, what are some of the reasons why? Uh, it gets silent in an organization. And you talked a bit about reprisals. What are what, what are some other things that you see? Thank you, Tobias. Um, I had to reflect first on the anecdote you just told me, the anecdotal <laughs> story. Um, to me, that is a really great sign within, uh, it, you said it was your niece? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, that, that we're allowing what we call 360 degree reviews, right? Um, in so many organizations, it's top down and we as the managers don't want to hear how we're doing. So I really like the fact that she got to get input from those below her. But I think um, one of the most important things with that kind of a system is that you need to teach people how to give and receive feedback, right? Because for that kind of thing to succeed, um, people know how to need to know how to do that constructively. And I would... Um, translate that to also in terms of people need to know how to speak up correctly. Um, And I think there could be some real training in how, you know, how do you speak critically without alienating the person that you're talking to? Um, How to, and and that's not something we come out of the womb knowing how to do. Um, And so I think that there could really be an emphasis in terms of just practical takeaways on um, how to train people. There's a whistleblower um, from South Africa, who lives in the UK now, named Wendy Addison, and 
she's studied social behavioral science and she talks a lot about the need to have courageous conversations and that in order to have courageous conversations, she actually was thinking about developing a VR headset where you actually are put into scenarios where you have to, where you role model it, where you model it and you see how you do. Um, I think it's a fabulous idea because I think that's really where we need to be um, to exercise those muscles because it's not, um, we all know how hard it is to speak up. I think they've done all these studies and Megan probably knows a lot more about it, you know, where someone left dog poop in a park and how hard it is for people to even confront that person. Um, so, um, but moving on to your question about what are some of the telltale signs? Um, I have the great fortune, um, one of the great fortunes of my career of representing uh, Tyler Schultz, who's one of the Theranos whistleblowers. Um, and the Theranos uh, story is huge in the United States. I don't know how much it's reverberated across the world, but it is the story it's of Elizabeth Holmes. Netflix Holm. and everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> right. And that, that fraud, although I know you have a lot of government people in the audience, I still think the lessons for Theranos are, are translatable across public-private sector. Um, there were a lot of telltale signs, um, starting with corporate governance, right? The board of Theranos, which is a biotech biosciences firm, on blood testing didn't have anyone on the board um, who had any of that experience. It had a lot of, you know, star-studded um, folks from uh, government, right? They have Henry Kissinger, former secretaries of state, Tyler's grandfather, George Schultz, um, General Petraeus, um, a lot of really big names. Um, and that should be a red flag, right? I, I think we often get... Um, a little myopic in how we look at where we want to encourage the, the dissent. The dissent needs to come from the board as well, right? And how you construct that board, um, who you populate on that board is really important. And of course, um, you won't be surprised to hear that we all need to benefit from the research that says boards that have women on them uh, are, uh, it, are part of companies that are more uh, um, profitable and, and effective, uh, not just one woman, so that we can't have tokenism, that that woman needs to feel safe to speak out. And part of that safety comes in having more than just one woman there, same way with people of color. Um, and I would also say that um, uh, maybe controversially, maybe not, that whistleblowers are um, people with diverse backgrounds, right, who um, are also voices that add to my idea of, of a diverse and inclusive uh, board and other environments. So I just wanted to point that out from one learning from the Theranos case. And the other, I would say, is just the siloing that went on, right? When you have, um, as Megan was talking about the, you know, the great and uh, the organization she's been uh, advising, um, when you have someone who's the big rainmaker, you're going to tolerate a lot of bad behavior. Well, with Elizabeth Holmes, it was just purposeful that they didn't want dissent and they made it difficult for employees to talk to one another. Um, no one, they didn't want anyone to know that they were actually, instead of testing the blood on the fancy um, device, um, that instead what they were doing is using the conventional device in the basement. Um, so I think it's really important to think about um, when you start to see the, start to butt up against those sorts of difficulties in talking to your peers, that there's definite roadblocks put in the way. That's another, uh, another big no-no. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is that um, 
bringing it back to Europe, the Wirecard scandal to me is um, a fascinating story. We all know it very, very, very well. But one of the things people may not have focused on, I thought it might be helpful for the government, for, for the folks in the audience and in government, is that um, before Pav Gill, who was one of the primary whistleblowers, who's actually the source for the FT story that broke the Wirecard scandal, before um, he spoke out, there's actually a short seller um, that came and actually reported to Boffin, who's the German financial regulator who is in charge of enforcing and, and regulating in this area. Um, so Boffin didn't have a way to hear that. Um, and I guess what I'll leave you with on this question is um, when Boffin, when it finally caught up with Boffin, when, you know, they didn't hear the short seller, then Pavgil, the whistleblower, goes to the FT and then a story breaks everywhere. What is the response of Boffin? It's not to investigate. It's to sue the FT, which I just think is extraordinary, right? So it just, to me, just shows the depth of how we want to shoot the messenger or assign blame elsewhere rather than saying, I made a mistake. I think that's the thing. And I, I guess I would start from, I, I have, um, real comfort that in my children's schools, there's a celebration of mistakes. Um, and so if you don't feel like you can talk about a mistake, this is what happens. I think we're all just too quick to, I always say the cover up is worse than the crime. I tell this to my kids, like, just tell me what you did wrong. The yeah, worst yeah. part is so, the cover. So true. Um, so, can I just add actually to that? Sure, Mary, sure. so many things there that Mary uh, said, uh, uh, in terms of, just an anecdote to what you just said there, Mary, um, in the, I think it was the Times or the Sunday Times in the UK, they have a very famous crossword. And um, one of the clues on this crossword a few months back was just the word whistleblower. And the answer in the crossword to that word, the answer in the crossword was betrayer. And I just thought, yeah, absolutely. That was my, I was like, oh my goodness, doesn't that speak volumes in terms of how we label, how we treat whistleblowers, how we treat, you know, people speaking up about mistakes and things that are going wrong. So, uh, and so in terms of just noticing how do people respond when stuff happens is probably a very good indication as to how much silence there is. Because if people get punished, then you can bet there's a pile of uh, stuff that isn't being um, talked about. And one other um, thing just to mention is back to that idea of habits. You know, I look at habits around what gets talked about and who does the talking. And so when you explore and you look at habits in teams, that can also give you an idea. So if in your teams, I think I may have mentioned this last podcast, but if in your teams you can see that it's habitual for people to stick up their hand and offer ideas, and if it's habitual for people to stick up their hand and say, I disagree, or I've got a different perspective, then that's a better sign, probably, than if that never ever happens. So what habits do you see happening? And th sorry, the final thing I wanted to link to that Mary brought up, which is really important, is um, kind of who does the speaking up? And we know that speaking up 
is gendered. We know from our research and data that the more white, male and senior you are, the more likely you are to think that people are speaking up around you. Um, so what we have to take care of is when we look into systems, we very often see, yeah, people are speaking up. Yeah, you know, I can, I can hear people speaking up. And then on closer exploration, you see that, ah, it's only certain people that are speaking up. And actually for many other uh, parts of the organization, they are expecting far more negative consequences as a result. So the final sort of thing to look at is who, the patterns, whose voice gets heard uh, as another really good good uh, signal there around silence. So thank you so much. And I think there's so much to take out of this. And now we, we've talked about, so how do we identify? What are the signs? And I, what do you do when you know that there is uh, a culture of silence when you know, and of course it might might look very different from organization to organization. And we're also going to let in some of uh, our participants to, to ask some questions here, but I just wanted to, to start. So uh, by, and, and maybe Megan, you want to start where, what is a place to start if we want to start building a culture of listening? Oh gosh, the place to start. So the place around, if you want to create people speaking up is around people in perceived positions of power uh, listening and inviting people to speak up well, particularly skilling them up in terms of inviting challenge, because that's the really that's the really tricky thing to speak up about. Um, before that, though, if those people in perceived positions of power don't see the need to do it, then nothing happens. So how do you how do you kind of create the imperative for speaking up? And uh, there is a lesson in how to speak up within that <laughs> nested in that. Uh, how do you link into what is of interest to people in these sorts of positions and just show them how important it is mm -hmm. around uh, silence, so that there is a an urge, there is a curiosity, there is a desire to find. Um, stuff out if leaders do not trust the value of other people's opinions then you don't get off the starting blocks usually so I often start I mean I literally start my work with leaders talking about the consequences of conversational habits and tying that into what they've got their eye on strategically and just really making it clear that you know pretty much everything that you've got on your eye on strategically depends on what people say and what which people get heard. So kind of grabbing people's attention is the, the, the kind of starting point. And then the other bit, um, well, there's so much to say on this, so I will pause <laughs> after the point and maybe not get too excited. The other point is if you want to... Um, change habits of speaking up and listening up you have to talk and engage with power status and authority and the way that we construct that in our systems because it's the biggest thing that then figures out what gets said it's how we label one another and the relative status of those labelings and um 
it is amazing how many organizations run speak up campaigns and speak up imperatives without at all mentioning the word power. And yet what we do is, you know, there's departmental labels, there's hierarchical labels, there's labels on gender and age and ethnicity and location and language and you name it. We label one another. And in that process, we are making assumptions and judgments about who should be heard and who it doesn't matter if we don't hear them. And unless you make that plain and bring that into people's awareness and then start to disturb the way that we construct power, again, it's very difficult to get beyond the superficial um, you know, how do you invite somebody to speak better? Because you're not just wanting the invitation for people to speak. You want them to be heard. <laughs> you, want the, you want them to actually be listened to, which is an entirely different um, level. So I'll pause, I'll pause there before I get too excited. No, so so I, I just wanted to, to, to recount a bit of what you said. So, so, I mean, we need to start with making sure that there's urgency around and why this is an imperative in organization, why this is important for us. And like you said, all of our goals, all of our strategic goals, whether we are running hospitals or a business, they are based on that we will actually have people sharing ideas, sharing concerns, sharing criticism, sharing all those things. And then we need to start with the leadership and we need to start talking about power and and Mary, I'm just thinking, uh, and and please please add to that. And I'm also thinking from the structural perspective, are, are there things that you say, okay, in terms of uh, of and 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 maybe a, of course a whistleblower hotline, but maybe even apart from that, what are some things that you see are are important as a start to create a culture of listening? Yeah, um, I really like what Megan had to say, and I, I, I want to build on that for sure and give some real concrete examples. Um, so I think we have to start um, to create a culture of listening. You have to start by examining our biases, right? And we have a bias, just like Megan said about the Times uh, crossword puzzle on what is a whistleblower? They're a betrayer. Um, we need to start by normalizing whistleblowing and examining this bias. And turning it on its head and basically getting people to understand not only are whistleblowers not disloyal, in fact, they're your most loyal employees because who has the temerity to speak the hard truths? Only people who care about the organization. So I would start with that and I would make sure that everybody in the organization, particularly management, reads the empirical research that came out of George Washington University and the University of Utah, where, um, Basically, it corroborates this idea that whistleblowers are valuable to organizations. They actually have a positive effect on the bottom line. So if we can translate this research and show that whistleblowers help companies be profitable, that will help. And so the research does show that. The research shows, and I'm happy to put a link in, um, in the chat, shows that companies who have hotlines and reporting mechanisms that are active, they're ringing off the hook, um, are more profitable than companies have silent. Uh, hotlines and it allows them to um, avoid federal investigations, to have fewer lawsuits against them. The lawsuits that they do have settle for far less. So I would start by trying to let people marinate on that idea. We're not going to unwind discrimination and biases overnight, but I think that's where the real work needs to do and really positioning whistleblowers as forward indicators of risk 
as risk management tools, as a CEO's best friend, not their worst enemy. Um, the second con concrete thing I we could do is um, how do you deal with your performance reviews? What how, um, employees want to measure themselves based on what you measure them on. Is there something in your evaluation form that says um, willingness to, as Megan was saying, you know, challenge, um, speak, so speak hard truths? I think that's really, really important. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, when we talk about hotlines, I do really think that the anonymous reporting mechanism is really important because I think what um, some of the best research shows that, um, if you don't have anonymous channels, a lot of whistleblowers will, will ask you uh, and set out a complaint like there's no toilet paper on the fifth floor. And you're going to think that's really minor, but that's their trial balloon to test you. Right. They want to see. So I, I would I would really encourage people to think about no complaint is too small because realize they may just that might just be a trial balloon. Uh, last two things really quickly, I would say hire a whistleblower. What nothing says more than you're serious about hearing um, people who speak up than hiring a famous whistleblower. Put Tyler Schultz on your board. Put Tyler Schultz in your compliance officer position. Um, and finally, there's some really interesting research and some tech solutions here that goes to what Megan was talking about. Um, the gendered approach to speaking up, that women don't tend to speak up as much as men, but there's now new technology that can put whistleblowers together and allow them to link arms. Um, and so the research shows that women and people of color are more likely to speak up if you allow them to come together where there's safety in numbers. And I'm happy to expand on that later, but that's just, um, there's actually one platform in particular called Vault that allows a go together feature. Mm. That's, that's really um that's that links in mary to some of the research we've been doing on activism over the last few years and one thing we certainly found was that uh obviously it it's it's far more um dangerous it feels far more risky to speak up if you're a lone voice so how can you collect together and, and more and more there are organizations and technical um possibilities of collecting being a collective voice around uh, certain issues, you know, organize.com comes to mind as well. You know, how do we organize petitions around a particular issue and how do we collect people together? And I think that's been a major change in people's um, ability to speak up. Um, and I mean, if I, if I may, I'll also sort of mention uh, one thing about leadership, because I, I come at this with a real interest in, in leadership and our story about what makes a good leader. And again, if we want to change things in terms of our organisation, another thing that we need to work on is our picture and image and story around what, what it takes to be a good leader. And, and it's a huge generalisation, but we we have in the past had a picture of good leadership as as the leader is the one that knows the answer, you know, and they convey that to the rest of the organisation who tells who, who basically does what they're told to do, and that was our picture of good leader, uh, you know, a charismatic, a visionary, you know, all these words, and we and we still look for that very often. Um, but of course, that has a huge number of consequences around there isn't anything really about listening in there, is there? Whereas we are shifting and moving gradually and slowly, but we are getting there to another 
idea of good leadership. And that good leadership is rather um, individuals who know that their perspective is partial, that know that they have blind spots and therefore they are obviously curious about finding out what those blind spots are. So they're leaning in and asking and they're inviting other people to speak. And that's leadership. So leadership is dialogue. And so although that that might feel to be a little bit of a kind of academic theoretical thing to say, again, it's similar to the way that we label and construct power and, and, and status. It's this sort of architecture that keeps us in the habits that we have. So if we could start to alter what good looks like, I was doing this, I was talking about this particularly in healthcare around surgeons, you know, and how the idea and the picture and the image of what a good surgeon looks like is slowly, but finally moving and shifting, you know, that old picture of a surgeon literally being a hero because it's always a, a man, a heroic individual that sweeps in and just does his brilliant thing and then sweeps back out again is not serving patients. (laughs) So how do we shift an idea in people's understandings of actually a surgeon is a very good team player. He's he or she is very good at bringing in and, and helping everybody to speak up. Again, different sort of um, uh, impression and image there that we need to work on still. So uh, thank you so much for this. And I I wanted to invite, because I think it's so important that we get an HR perspective on this because we have a lot of HR professionals with us. And and Tammy, are you here? I I think I see you. Uh, I think you had a great kind of question on, uh, if you hear us uh, on... Kind of how we how we start these conversations because I think that for a lot of HR professionals you have to kind of have these conversations with your leaders. So you're you have to get others to start reflecting on these things. So so Tammy, please. Uh, thank you for a really interesting talk. So my name is Tammy and I work as a HR specialist in management consulting and development for yeah in the public sector in uh, Dalarna, it's like in the middle of Sweden. And so I, beforehand, you've kind of been touching on the subject, but I was wondering like, um, in your experience, what are some good ways to start talking about like mm, unspoken norms and behavior where you might not think like, oh, mm, this is not cool, or I don't really agree with this or that, but it's hard to like bring the conversation up. So everyone just keeps making their own interpretations, which can lead to, you know, you might feel upset or things like that. So how can you start to lift these questions up? And I, and I, and I want, to, want to connect what you're saying, Tammy, also with, I think that when we bring up things like culture silence or power, I think a lot of leaders get very defensive. And I think that's just one of the examples of what, what you're, you're saying. So, yes. So, uh, I mean, it makes me smile because a lot of my work is is with senior leaders and typically an HR person will come to me and say, I've got a senior executive team. They really need to change the behavior uh, and you need to do it 
in it, they're just going to be defensive. So how do you how do you tell them that they're essentially uh, deluded, which is a word that I do use with them. And um, so it, it reminds me of, again, going in. I go in with senior teams armed with, um, I suppose, the credibility of research and data and the ability to um, provoke and challenge, but a, with a bit of a twinkle in my eye whilst I do it, a little bit of humour. So, for example, uh, we know that uh, leaders enter what I call an optimism bubble, which is that, you know, when they get more senior, when you, when we get more senior, we will overestimate the degree to which other people are, are speaking up. And I typically gather data before I go into an organisation and and I just show it and it shows exactly that that's happening. Or also I, I show data on what we call superiority illusion, which is the fact that we tend to rate ourselves really highly on listening, far better than we rate our peers uh, and definitely better than we rate the people that are senior to us. Uh, and that's because we, you know, we rate ourselves on our intent and we rate other people on their behavior. And there's something about being able to present people with that in a, in a way that isn't kind of like, you're wrong. It's a look what we do as human beings. This is inevitable. It is happening. You are in a bubble. How are you going to burst it? And by the way, here are all the reasons why you really need to take this seriously, because what you're looking to achieve as a leader is directly related to you bursting this bubble and then it becomes a, a sort of uh, uh, how can we how can we give people some really pragmatic things that they need to watch out for and, and in our research we talk about traps so we typically say you know which of these traps are you falling into right which are you going to avoid going forward Here's a little framework to help you. So it's the kind of pragmatic stuff that starts to help people to change and alter their habits. Um, but the final thing I would say as well is that when you're looking for um, leaders or anybody to change habits, uh, it isn't something that you kind of, you know, uh, much as I don't want to undersell myself here, if you get me to pop up and do a 20 minute keynote, I am not probably going to change the habits of your entire leadership team. You will have to support them and create a kind of architecture around them to make sure that any disruption that they make is supported and held, and held going forwards. Um, so, you know, that's the other aspect of, of, of helping leaders in a, in a very pragmatic way. I'll pause there, pass over to Mary. I would say to build upon what Megan said is that um, in order to lift the questions up to address unspoken norms and behaviors, I guess I would like to reflect on what I have observed, which is that um, people in organizations tend to feel safe to speak up to people who are like them. Um, so that means I've certainly noticed that as a woman on our management committee, you know, in, in leadership and in, in our whistleblower team, I'm one of the senior leaders, right? Um, women associate attorneys come to me. Um, 
And so I would just, uh, and I know that that's also true. I mean, that's what the whole basis of DE&I is about, right? As I think we think about it more generally, that it's important that we have these diverse perspectives because the organization comes to a better result. Kind of um, what Megan was talking about is what is a good leader? Um, we know a good leader is someone who recognizes their implicit biases, but also uh, sees that we get to a better result when we all have people coming from different backgrounds. Um, and so I think with the analog to that is that you need those people from different backgrounds to be reflected in your organization so that people feel safe to speak up to someone who looks like them or to someone that they can relate to. So I guess to me, um, if, you're, if you're looking for that, I think it's really important that in your compliance function, in your HR function, but most importantly in your leadership team, you need to have uh, a wide array of backgrounds and people. Mm. That's that's so so helpful and and thank you thank you so much, Tammy. Mm. Thank thank you for thank you for a great great question and and I think we we've been talking a lot about habits and and I think it's so uh, important that we want to make sure and when we had somebody asking this question but they they couldn't be here to to ask it live but. What what do we do? And and I mean in, in our our work at, at heart management, the way we look at culture and at here at uh, Agenda and Culture is to think that culture is not built by project or events, but it's by built by healthy habits that create a healthy culture. But in terms of creating a culture of listening, what are some key habits that we need to make sure that these are in place? One of the one of the key things here is for um, it sounds really obvious, but it's 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 it makes a lot of sense, but it's not common sense. Um, leaders need to put themselves in the shoes of the people that they want to hear from, and then figure out what's the environment, what's the context, what's the situation that will help those those people to speak up, and. Um, one of our, our first article in Harvard Business Review on this whole topic was called um, The Problem with Saying My Door is Always Open. And we were reflecting on the fact that, you know, of course, lovely that you say my door is always open, but it it assumes a number of things. You know, it assumes, OK, if you've got something to say, I'll be in my office, you know, come get me. Um, it assumes that coming into your territory and your office is not a deeply scary thing for somebody to do. So how can you see yourself as others see you and then work with how you show up and the kind of environment that you choose in order to make it less scary for people to speak? Um, so, so that would be one of the first things I said is, is, is put yourself in their shoes, see how risky it feels and then do the work that you need to, to put that person, uh, at their ease far more. I think it's also the one other thing I'll mention is in terms of very pragmatic, um, look at the questions that you ask. And again, this, you know, you all know this, that we all know this, this has been, this is not new, but it's still 
never ceases to amaze me how important this is. The difference between a leader finishing a presentation and then saying to the team, right, could you give me some feedback? Versus our ability to say, you know, and I may have said this at the last podcast because it is a very live experience uh, story that I had from a recent research project, you know, versus the difference in a leader saying, you know, okay, could you put yourself in the shoes of, you know, this most discerning customer? If you were them, what challenges would you have to what we're doing? You know, you're making it easier for somebody to challenge. You're making it safer. The example, again, apologies if if your listeners have heard this one, but again, I love it. So I do tend to say it quite a bit. The government um, policy uh, advisor that I spoke to that changed the question when she sent her policy documents out to her team changed the question from could you give me some feedback to could you let me know two or three ways I could improve this yeah it's just small changes to questions that make it far safer and easier and makes people work harder actually in terms of thinking through well what do I have to say here um okay I better I better read this I better look at it with a view of improving it So you're helping people to work hard, but you're also voicing it in a way that means that disagreement and challenge is is a little easier to voice. I wanted to build on what Megan said. And I, um, in terms of something really practical, I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating, um, which is we need to create an environment where we celebrate mistakes. Um, And I think that and how we respond to mistakes, right? If people are chastised, um, that it's going to make it, this translates into how they perceive the ability to bring ideas and be creative. And how do you lean in? How do you do all these things that are catchphrases? I think that is something that's really important because, um, and to also let people know that creative ideas, to encourage creativity and to let people know that good ideas come from anywhere. Um, right. So I think that the more we can flatten the hierarchy, um, the more you're going to get that. And of course, there's always going to be a need for hierarchy. But the more that people are brought into the conversation and you see how inclusive you are in terms of I mean, and I'll give you an example from our whistleblower practice. We have a weekly team meeting, our administrative assistants, our uh, administrators, our office manager, they're all in on these meetings because we want to not just have a lawyer's perspective, right? We know that these good ideas, some of the best ideas come from our paralegals, from people who are not immersed in the legal mindset. So we kind of have a check on ourselves. Um, so I guess those would be my my three points. And um, Finally, to just to, to underscore what Megan's saying, she's talking about mentalization, that for you to put yourself in the shoes of someone else is, is, a, um, is a, a, a psych, psychological technique that's really helpful called mentalization. And I think that people are really interested in that. Um, it, it, there's certainly a, a lot of literature that people can read. And I think that the social behavioral science, the body of social behavioral science out there that we keep alluding to, if you could understand, and as Megan said, allow people to say, this, is, this isn't a failing of you. All humans have these blind spots, 
right? And so that you can sort of take it out of the the sense that that it's just you as the lone employee who has this blind spot, I think is helpful. But I, I just go back to celebrating mistakes because, um, you know, you look at that with children they see how you respond when they make a mistake and they, they won't, they won't do it again. And in a way you want them to get out there and, and try these hard things. That's the only way good creative change happens. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that like uh, based on, on what I'm hearing you say. So I think that, that if we aren't intentional in our organizations, we will see silence because it's not going to kind of come on its own that, that we are, like you said, Megan, before we we're not as good listeners as we think we are. We are more intimidating than we think we are. And, and if we don't do something that is kind of extra, like you said, celebrate mistakes, Mary, uh, people will be afraid to make them. People will be afraid to, to raise concerns that I'm thinking that's like, like silence in a sense def- is in a sense default, unless we're actively doing something to, to make sure that, that we're, we're hearing something is what's, what's, what's your perspective on that, Megan? Um, the thing that was going through my head is that um, I'm not sure about silence being the default. If if we have um, if we had organisational spaces where people have the space to show up, to reflect, to remember what's important, to look after ourselves so that we're showing up in relationship with other people in that way, then we'd probably find that the default was to speak up. Um, but our organizational systems are, you know, pathologically busy. We pile, we, we, we are run by a philosophy of more, you know, this year has to be more than last year. And we are straight out of a pandemic. Uh, We have a number of other, you know, fairly significant crises going on. And we expect people to turn up and kind of, you know, be able to to speak well with one another. So I I suppose I'm just saying that this, this of course, is all nested in a a system and a way of being with one another that, that means that we have to try and work really hard to help one another to speak up. Um, uh, and I'm very interested in how we look, I suppose, how we look after ourselves so that we can show up in a way that people find it far more easy to relate to us. You know, how can we look after ourselves in a way that we show up more mindfully, more connected with the fact, actually, yes, we're leaders and Actually, when it comes down to it, the most important thing is not the next quarterly figures. It's looking after the team that we have. You know, nearly all of the managers and leaders that I work with, give them a kind of small space. They'll remember what's important. And it very often is the well-being of the people that are around them. But we just don't have the space to remember it. So there's a sort of slightly off-piste <laughs> other thing around this is, is, you know, it is all connected. And if we can't look after ourselves in these systems uh, and, and if we don't allow the space for us 
to show up and reflect well, then yeah, we, we are making it a significantly more tricky endeavor to try and get people to, to speak up. I wanted to invite, we have uh, one more HR here that I wanted to invite in. Nina, uh, are you here from Inera? And and I think you had a really, really interesting question. And then we're going to open the floor for, for anyone to, to ask. And Nina, what, what an amazing background that is. That's like incredible. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Hello, Megan. Hello, Mary. Hello, Tobias. Yes. Um, um, I, I, I have the same role as um, Tammy, who recently spoke. And I think one of um, you actually mentioned how we speak about problems and that words actually can help us to preserve dignity for the people who are involved in in conflicts problems but you cannot also tend to enlarge them so I really want to know how we can use words to to make um well how shall I explain it problems um what they actually are because you can you can talk about people um, in a much worse way than they actually are or behave, but you can also um, make it so much smaller than it is or they are. So I see often that's that that's part of the problem. Like wor words something. that yeah, words Sorry. that with either kind of. I mean that words can escalate the situation, or it yeah. can, or it can cover up the situation, depending yeah. on, on on like how we can be be really intentional. Yes, I, I find it extremely important how we choose our words when we describe problems for both sides. Okay, two things coming into my mind, which may or may not help. Um, one is that, yeah, I talk about trigger words, actually. Um, mm. How do, and again, it involves our ability to step into the other person's shoes when we're speaking up. You know, which words are going to draw this person in, in a positive way? Yeah. Which words were, are they going to prick their ears up at? Which words are they going to be interested in? And then also, obviously, which words are going to send them in the other direction? Which words yeah. are going to mean that they're bored or that they immediately are on the defensive? Um, and, and I think that's quite, again, it, it does involve our ability to see things from the other person's um, perspective. And then the other thing that came to mind was um, a saying that we have in our research, which is, if you don't have the small conversations, the bigger conversations are impossible. And yeah. words, we trip ourselves up over words, mm. in particular when there is no rela relational holding. Um, you know, if we have to get it right and we are, will be judged straight away, then, mm. yeah, then this is a real issue. If we have some of what, what we call the small conversations, the relational day-to-day -day conversations that enable us to build up a respect and a liking for the people that we're working with, we tend to then be more forgiving when they say, so we yeah. tend to be more likely to say, oh, what? hang on, can I just check with you? What did you mean by, because 
and we'll we'll check in as opposed to immediately mm. uh, feeling defensive or, or hitting back. So yeah, trigger words, but also um, the valuing of small conversations and spaces to relate and connect with one another. And, and that last thing is so much more difficult than it sounds when we are deeply pressured over urgent, not necessarily important, but urgent things. We tend to mm. discount the value yeah, of the spaces perfect. for the small conversations. But if you ignore them for a while, then you'll find, yeah, words start to cause all sorts of problems. Um, yeah. I would weigh in just really quickly to say, um, you, I really like that you raised the issue of words because um, words are really powerful when we talk about the words that we have for whistleblowers, right? We talked about betrayer, but every culture has a different word for whistleblower that's negative, right? That's a tattletale, a snitch, um, you're dobbing someone out. All of these have incredibly negative connotations. Um, so I would just, you were talking about what are, what are words to deal with the problem? Often the whistleblower is the problem. And so I think we, we're talking about words. We have to start with creating words that we've moved away from whistleblowers to speak up, to truth tellers. We still haven't come up with something that, that is quite as good. Um, but uh, I just, I, I have to come back to those words are enough that, you know, if that gets said around, you know, even as a joke, as you're filling out the crossword without any recognition of the bias there, um, that's a really chilling effect. And um, it's interesting because one case of one of my clients um, who is a Medicare fraud uh, whistleblower, she exposed serious Medicare fraud within her organization. Um, when she wouldn't, she refused to sign her name on a government certification that she knew was false. And when she wouldn't, and she just kept standing up and kept standing up, they actually sent a psychologist, um, someone within their organization who was a psychologist to speak with her. So that's the pathologizing. So the yeah. words are underscore as you are, your question belies the fact that you appreciate what do these words show is they underscore and belie what really is going on in your mind. Um, so I think we need to challenge people for their words and say, let's examine this word. Um, is there some implicit bias in that word? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's 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 so so much more uh, that we can say on this conversation, and we're gonna give it over to to questions, uh, more more questions. But uh, I I'm I'm just thinking from from some of the things that I'm I'm learning to that we need to be intentional that it's not happening out of itself or on its own. That we need to be very uh, clear on what are kind of like like you were saying now, Mary. What are who are the heroes and the villains in our organization? And do we see people speaking up as? Do we speak about them as villains or do we speak about them uh, in positive light? Even though and and then and we really need to think about leadership and we really need to think about power. And and I I'm, I'm thinking that that for for many of our organizations, if we if we kind of look at that, we see identify that we have a bit of a culture of silence in, in some aspects that we really need to do our analysis well and understand kind of what is what is underlying here what are the different because i think it might look so different i think in one organization it might be that 
you don't want to be the negative one. You're everyone should be positive. Or another one, it's it's the the really really offensive or the really really uh, kind of strong leader who nobody dares to oppose. Or somebody else, it's a group of people who are who are the superstars, and you don't dare to question them. And I, I think one one more thing, and and uh, that that I'm just thinking about is is that. What what we see when we analyze culture in a lot of organizations is that one of the reasons that people don't speak up is because they have learned that it doesn't matter, that saying something will not be dealt with, that that things. And I'm thinking about an organization we worked with very recently where they've had a really bad HR management and and also problems with leaders where just people had been speaking up but nobody did anything and and so so i'm thinking that's also something megan do you want to chime into that um yeah i would say that certainly in the surveys that i conduct with different organizations then it's normally you know over well over a third of people that respond to the survey assume that they if they speak up with a problem they're likely to be ignored so the figures, it differs depending on different organizations, but um, it's usually between, you know, 30, 40%, which is incredible when you think about it. It's like, you know, so that many of us assume that if we speak up with a problem, we'll be ignored. And of course, and then you delve into that and you think, well, where's that come from? And and how do people determine what what does ignored mean? And, and sometimes leaders are listening and sometimes they even do stuff, but that's hidden from the person that raised the issue in the first place. And therefore the story perpetuates that nothing gets done around here. So sometimes it's an issue of, yeah, leaders and managers are ignoring uh, and they're ignoring because they uh, get rewarded for entirely different things within the system or they are just so overwhelmed with what they've got, they can't take any more. So it's not necessarily an individual, you know, they're a mean leader. It, it can be the system that means that our leaders can't, can't act. Or in some cases, it's a, it's a communication issue that actually stuff is happening, but that isn't being communicated and shared very well. And the stories of when people speak up and a difference has been made are not being given the same sort of platform. Generally in organizations, you know, you know, we, we all prefer the negative stories, quite frankly, they're much more interesting. So we tend to talk about all the times where, you know, especially if it's against the leaders, you know, the leaders have messed up. So we need to work a little bit harder assuming that it's authentic um on some of the positive stories of what what can make a difference and what does make a difference and yes i think we'll give it over to you for the, the last few minutes that we have yeah we only have a few minutes left and we have someone here in the uh in the conversation that would like to pop in and ask a question so i'm going to hand it over to susan Hello, I'm working as a headhunter and coach. Uh, and I, when I'm coaching people, I quite often get the impression that they uh, seem to think they, they need to be perfect. And uh, in that gap between speaking out and uh, you know, being perfect, it can create silence. 
Have you thought about that? Because I, I try to say uh, that nobody is supposed to be perfect when you start a job. You, you're supposed to do the task, and uh, but you're still supposed to be a person. Mm. Yeah, I probably link into Brené Brown's fabulous work on vulnerability and shame here, and how we again we you know construct our organizational spaces. Uh, under the illusion that we have to show up as perfect mm. and and therefore we hide uh mistakes or times that we you know things that we don't know about but of course as soon as we hide as soon as we hide it we are just building that norm that rule that says you don't talk about it when you've made a mistake mm. which is the reason why the onus you know really is more on again people in perceived positions of power which very usually is the the senior people but I'm, it's not just senior people people that are heard people are that are perceived as as influential the more that they are able to speak more openly about not knowing or having had a blind spot that they just didn't see mm. um you know you can you can palpably feel the relief <laughs> with yes. employees when leaders do that it's like oh thank god for that <laughs> so um i think what you say is really important and uh, uh and the, and the more that we can make it okay to talk about things mm. that's probably going to help um hugely our ability to talk about and learn from uh when things don't go well and, and mistakes yeah because i i find that leadership today uh, is like parenting you seem to go and look for a book where you do anything you know by numbers uh, and instead i would like to have leaders as well as parents <laughs> that try to go sometimes with the flow and with the inner core of thinking uh, you know, in just a sound way, because if if you dare to go into that, uh, you know, that box, then you can chase out the elephant and you can do do stuff in a good way instead. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree there, Suzanne. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Suzanne. <laughs> Uh, we have a couple of questions that came in uh, before this uh, conversation started uh, in the registrations that we haven't touched upon. Maybe I, we, we have touched upon them, but, but I want to put, put them in here uh, anyway, because this recording is going to live its life by its own afterwards. So uh, how can we avoid reprisals in connection to speaking up is one question that came up. Yeah, um how we avoid reprisals is we have to change the corporate handbook. Um, that's a tall order. And I think we need to experience, we need to reflect on the fact that there's medieval wiring in us, um, both personally and professionally to shoot the messenger. Um, and we see it time and time and time again, we're not going to turn that on its head. Um, and I would encourage along the lines of mentalization to, to really make it relatable, to ask, um, employees and managers to say, how do you respond when someone close to you in your interpersonal life challenges you? Who are the people in your personal life who call you out when you've done something wrong? Um, and to me, I, you know, the answer inevitably is only someone who really loves you, right? 
people mm. and, and and so i always try and bring it back to that is to show that speaking up it is an act of loyalty an act uh, a really difficult act that's only done by people who care um and i think once you start to see people like that you get away from shooting the messenger and also once you understand that you can own your mistakes you don't have to cover up and divert attention and blame people. So, but those are so core in the culture, right? Um, that it's really hard to do. Um, but I would just um, challenge people to say, I mean, what I see time and time again is that employees who a lot, not all of my clients are, um, you know, are perfectly snow white, um, but um, they often have had great performance reviews. And then all of a sudden, literally within, um, you know, days of their speaking up or months, they're all of a sudden problem people. They say they're difficult. They're not a team player. Like I, there's all of these um, words and terminology that's used to show that um, we're going to retaliate, right? That we're all of a sudden threatened. So how do people act when they're in a corner, right? They, 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 they reach out and slash out. Um, so I think the best way is to come and, and, and deal with our human natures um, and to try and think about whistleblowers, not as heroes or villains, but just as normal everyday people doing their job and bringing it full circle to say whistleblowers are made by the companies. They're not, they don't come into the company saying I want to be, nobody comes into the company saying I want to be a whistleblower. That's so good. And so uh, helpful and I actually think we have to stop with the questions there I'm sorry Megan for not letting you uh, that that, that it could not end on a better note than what Mary has just said so I think it's the perfect closing okay that that's point. good it's great that's, great way to finish it yeah I would just want to respect everyone's time here of course and I just want to say a huge thank you to, to you all for such an insightful and interesting conversation I I've, I really feel you took a subject that can feel uh, uh, difficult uh, and made it very practical and understandable uh, in taking it on for, for all of us listening. So, so thank you so much for that. It was, uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we've received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.